0: My name is Stephanie Hoffman. Um, I'm here with Fred and Mary Benoit um, at um, their home. It is September 13th, 2017, and we're going to start with our first question, which is, why wine?
1: Why wine? Why not? (laughs) Uh. Your story. Okay. <laughs> I'm a physician who was in practice in Eugene and I had Thursdays off and all my partners played golf and I hated golf so I planted a vineyard and it came from, the, from there it turned into a winery.
0: How'd you first get the idea to plant a vineyard? Pardon? How'd you first get the idea to plant a vineyard?
1: Uh, well my family's always been agriculturally oriented. I have a lot of uncles that had farms and I spent time on them. So I was always interested in agricultural things. And at that time, I was reading that this was in the the early 70s. I was reading uh, that the possibility that Oregon was going to be a a good place to grow grapes. And so uh, I thought that would be a nice thing to keep me busy after I retired. I could, you know, have a little winery and people would come out and, and so that, but then, but then I, after we started the winery, it f- turned out that isn't a feasible thing. You have to get bigger and you have to do it more. So mm-hmm. we got sucked in.
0: Um, what Can you talk about the first couple of years um, on the vineyard and starting it from scratch and what that was like?
1: Yes, we ha- we planted our first vineyard in Eugene outside of vi- the Veneta. Um, five acres in um, what was going to be supposed to be the spring of 1972, Um, and at that time there wasn't available grape plants or rootstock, and uh, Charles Curry and Dick Erath started a nursery operation to raise um, a lot of great plants, and basically it was a method where you take one leaf in, in a, in a super-saturated environment with heat and moisture, that you grow that into a plant. And so we, we contracted with them to, um, to, do, to supply those plants with us, and, and we didn't, and actually it turned out they were supposed to be delivered in May, and it turned out we didn't get the plants till August. Which, and they were like little tomato plants about this tall. Um, we didn't fi- I didn't find out until just recently that the reason for that was is in, they, they had a um, uh, where they were growing them in a hot house in, in Portland, and apparently in the winter they lost power to their heating and the, all the things froze, but they never told us that, and so they'd started over so we planted in the first part of August and it was over 100 degrees the day that we planted. We we were part of a, a home winemakers group and so all our winemaking friends came out and helped us plant this five acres and we had to put a shingle over them to keep the sun off of them because it was so hot. And, and then and, watering, remember? And then we had to water them all by hand every day because we didn't have a... We weren't set up, so we we were able to s- s- salvage them, and they actually came through um, and were grow and were growing at the time the fall started. But in December of that year was the coldest winter they'd had in Lane County forever, I guess, and all everything froze. It was so bad. Actually, in Lane County at that time, there was 800 acres of walnut trees and all the walnut orchards were frozen out and had to be taken out. So so the next year we started over, and at that time we started with with uh, cuttings, which Dick E. Russ supplied, and we planted at the first, the first planting, we didn't know what grapes to plant, so we planted 20 varieties <laughs> on five acres. <laughs> and so wow. uh, that was probably fortuitous that they all died because that wasn't the way to go. So the next, by the next year, it was more evident that uh, Riesling, Chardonnay, and Pinot would be the grapes that would do best, so that's what we replanted. And,
2: Oregon State had a test yeah, plot.
1: Actually, Oregon State couldn't tell us what grapes to plant uh, at that time because they didn't know. And so we also had a, a test plot for them uh, of about 14 other varieties to, just to see which was going to do best. And, and as I say, the, the answer was is that it was really Chardonnay and Pinot and Raisling. Okay.
0: <laughs> do you have any other stories of
2: those first couple of years? <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure you'd want to hear them. <laughs> uh, she, she saw the downside. Uh, yeah, I did, because we had six children, and we were trying to get them through school. And <laughs> all this, you know, that's the downside of being an entrepreneur, so, but uh, we're still here. <laughs>
0: After that first freeze, did you guys debate not replanting?
2: No, we
0: didn't.
2: <laughs> we didn't do it then. I knew we, it was in his bones. We he replanted
1: so that so we replanted with a rootstock, and that everything was coming along really great, uh, and the plants were up about this high uh, in the spring, and in late May we had a frost and everything was. Frosted to back again, and at that point, I was ready to call it quits. But Mary, I encouraged encouraged you. me to continue going. So we tried again, and finally we got the, the, that vineyard going, and and uh, it it prospered. And that, we didn't really get a crop until about the seventh year. And our first crop we sold to Amity Vineyards who made n- Nouveau wine out of it, because they were, weren't really fully ripe. And, uh, and the first, uh, well, we, we started, the, the vineyard was started in 72, but the first grapes were commercially picked with 79. And uh, those went to Amity, and I think the next year they went to Amity. Well, we, we
2: made wine in 79. Remember when the buyer wouldn't buy and the seller wouldn't sell?
1: It was seventy-seven and seventy-eight that we sold to Amity, and then by seventy-nine we were we. And (laughs) we we got started again. (laughs) The winery, the winery, because of all the problems we had at that site in Veneta, I thought that we I needed to find another site that was that was more. uh, weather-friendly, uh, and so we found the property up by Lafayette where where the Ultimate Winery was. And we, we bought that property in 1979 and, uh, and had it, it, was bare land. The owner of it was raising Santa gratuitous cattle on that. Actually, he had about 150 acres that he divided into three parcels, and ours, our parcel was about 62 acres. And we um, made the, the agreement with him and started development and built the, the road and, and, and got a well and started development for the winery. And unfortunately, the seller, uh, actually he had received cash for the other two parcels that he sold, and he would received so much cash, he didn't want to get cashed out again because um, uh, uh, for tax reasons, and so all of a sudden he didn't want to complete the sale, and <laughs> so we had to stop uh, what the development that was going there and and get into a legal wrangle, uh, and ultimately he did did uh, we did get the property because we. We'd already
2: developed part of it and put the road in. Um, but at the same time, we are selling our house in Eugene because yeah, we are going to move yeah. up there, and the buyer wouldn't change yeah, his we mind had, we were buy. we
1: sell it. We're selling our house in Eugene, and the the person who bought it was someone from Chicago that was a, um, he worked on one of the exchanges, in uh, and all his business was by phone, so he thought, since it was so cold in Chicago, he could do, do the job from our place. And he bought the, made the deal in December, I mean, in January, but by the summer he decided he didn't want it. So we had a, a buyer who didn't want to buy and a seller who didn't want to sell. So we were <laughs> having all kinds of problems. Or uh, stubborn. But we, but we, we <laughs> so in the meantime we had at at our Vanita property, I had built a pole house, a pole barn, a 24 by 36 pole barn, and in the process of all this development, we had hired a winemaker from from Switzerland to come and be our winemaker, and he was coming expecting that we would have a winery, and what we had was a pole barn on on the property in Eugene. So we made our first wine in 1979 in that pole barn, it was about 10 tons of grapes that we processed by hand and, and um, ma- made that wine. And in the meantime, and so that, our, our development and uh, of the property at Lafayette was delayed for a year. So we didn't get the building built there until 1980. So our first winery in Yammill County was in 1980. So, so f- that, for a period of time we had two winery, two bonded wineries in, in Bonita and in Lafayette.
2: That winemaker, excuse me, was Max Zellweger. He, he went to a Seattle winery from, uh, or a Yakima winery from us and then on to Seattle. I didn't know if you would have heard his name or not. Yeah, I don't think he, I don't know where he is now, but um, he, I didn't think he had any interest in anything Oregon. Yeah.
1: Well, he, he got a bad deal because he came expecting to work in a winery and what he found was a pole barn. So he helped us develop and he was, he, all the wines he made won, won awards. He was really good with white wines. He wasn't, his red wine experience wasn't as good. Um,
2: but you couldn't ripen red grapes at that time you know, in, and, a, in the Willamette Valley like you can now. That's our proof that there is global warming. In terms
1: (laughs) of climate change, during the early 1980s, Pinot would not ripen. And so for several years, we had a lot of rosé wines, and we started making sparkling wine, which is made with unripe grapes and um, Nouveau and Nouveau. And we really didn't start getting uh, good ripening seasons until the late 80s, and then in 90, everything from 90 on, everything since then has ripened with no problem. So, in fact, we had a in one of the uh, winery groups that we vlogged to had a dinner with a climatologist there, and he he thought he was from uh, the university in Ashland, and. He said that by in 30 or 40 years, the best place to grow Pinot Noir will be the Puget Sound. And that's essentially coming. Now, at that time, we could not ripen Cabernet in the Willamette Valley because it was so cool. Well, now they can. And so things have certainly warmed up.
0: So going back just a little bit, how did you find the land in, oh, not just how did you find or why did you pick the land in Lafayette? Like,
1: what drew you to that area? Well, I was, because of my experience in Veneta, I was looking for a a hillside. Actually, we had gone to France in 1975, and I bought a book there on what the Burgundy soils are, which was in French, but you could make it out. And uh, when I came back, I asked uh, the, the, the extension service um, people, what what soil series in the Willamette Valley was most like the soils of Burgundy? And it turns out uh, the Willakensy soil series is the one that's. It's not like it's not like Burgundy in terms of having a lot of calcium or lime in the soil, but it's the one that was most similar, had the most similar similarities to Burgundy. So we were really looking for some land that had Willakensy soil. Um, and I, I took the, the farm newspaper, I can't think, that's published in Salem, so I was looking for land there all the time, and I saw this, the ad for this, and we went up and looked at it, and uh, it was a, a west-facing slope uh, that was perfect, and so, and it, and it, it had, on the hillside, it had Willa soil, in the bottom part, it was a another soil series that wasn't as appropriate.
2: And it had a beautiful view. Yeah, it was a, a hundred
1: 100 degree, a 160 degree view all the way around, so that was that was why we chose that property. It was a piece of land that was 600 feet wide and a mile deep, and it went up with the top of the hill, about in the middle, and went
2: down on the other side. No, mm-hmm. well, you know, you're familiar with the land, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So you said that you hired a winemaker um, pretty early in the beginning. Um, what did each of you do um, at the winery and vineyard? What, were, what did you guys have doing day-to-day?
1: We did everything, <laughs> whatever needed doing. Uh, we did, when we, we built our, our concrete building in 1980, and, and basically our tasting room was just one corner of the cellar. Uh, in fact, that table over there was was our was our tasting room table <laughs> and uh, Mary ran the the tasting room and, and I laid
2: the tile on yeah, the bathroom well, floor we, had to do it. <laughs> we did anything that needed doing
1: <laughs> it was it was interesting Max our winemaker from Switzerland was very rigid and ordinary that everything had to be just right and er- and in their culture, you only have someone who does that do that. You don't do everything. There's no do-it-yourself like in America. So when we would tell Max that we're gonna do the drywall or we're gonna do this, he'd say, well, you need to get someone to do that. And we didn't know we're doing that. And so we finally found a little plaque that we put on the door. That's and it's probably says, still on that I door. I still is, it says, <laughs> no task will be avoided merely because it's impossible.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And when he became an American citizen, oh maybe five years after he left us probably, and uh, I said, Max, uh, what made you decide to be an American? And he said, because you are so tolerant. We kept kept saying, yes, we're American, we can.
1: So did, I don't I don't know where your question you, was, was Did that answer your questions Yeah, I, yeah.
0: Um, So in your opinion, what makes good wine?
1: The soil and the and the climate. I mean each 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 grape is attuned to the soil that, uh, for instance, uh, the first year the, in seventy nine. Uh, we, we we from our own little five acre vineyard, we didn't have we didn't have quite ten tons of grapes to make the small amount of wine we made. So we were looking for some other grapes. and there was another vineyard up by Salem, uh, or I'm actually by Corvallis, I can't remember the name of it, and they were selling Mueller Turgau grapes. And we'd never heard of that, and we said, well, you know we don't know about that well, Muller Turgau was developed in Switzerland and is one of the primary grapes of Switzerland. So Max said, "Well, I know how to do that." So we bought these grapes from from this vineyard and made Muller Thurgau, uh, which is a cross between Riesling and Sylvaner, and, and it it has a lot of the taste characteristics of Riesling, but the growth characteristics of Sylvaner, so it produces huge tonnage without losing flavor. And so uh, when we when we started the new winery at Lafayette, there was about 10 acres of, of bottom land that wasn't appropriate for Pinot Noir, and we planted Mueller-Turgow there, and, and we regularly got about six tons to the acre of that, which was, and we uh, we were producing about 12,000 cases of Mueller Turgau a year, and people loved it. And actually, we usually sold out in nine months, so we'd be out of it for a while until the new crop. So we re- and one of the things was is it it was best when it was very young and fresh. And so we as soon as it was finished fermenting, we bottled it and sold it, in like in November.
2: Other people who were not wine drinkers started with Mueller turkau Yeah, people would come in and now say... now they're yeah. drinking Pinots, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah,
1: yeah, people would come to the winery and say, "I don't know about wine. I don't like wine." And then they'd go out taking a case of Mueller out because it was slightly sweet and a little bit spritzy and sort of, sort of like Coca Cola. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Not that sweet. No, not that sweet, but anyway. We haven't had Coca-Cola in a long no, time. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um,
0: so what was your most mem- memorable vintage?
2: Um, well, we, we won uh, we won Best of Show and for yeah. the Northwest that time. Yeah, we, we, w- our, we won Best of Show. We were the second a sh- winery to make sparkling wine.
1: Well, that, yeah, we early on because of not getting the Grace Rife, we made a lot of sparkling wine and we won some awards with that the Governor's Award for Washington. Um, but there was a vintage, and I can't remember which vintage it was. I think maybe 89 or 9, I can't remember, but. About before we left the winery, the the um, the the fair, the state Oregon State Fair in Salem, had a wine event, and they at at that that must have been in about '98. They were looking for the the best Pinot that had been produced from any winery at any time. And we entered, and I can't remember the vintage. It probably was about '95, ma- something yeah. like that. And we won. We won with the best vintage for the first 20 years of, and of course that's that, of that, all the wineries that, who entered. Of course, that, many. Yeah, many wineries didn't put have their noses in the air and don't do things. Well, like and that. some of them didn't didn't have that vintage in because it was an older vintage. So anyway. <laughs> So I guess that, but I I can't remember what vintage that was. It was mid mid 90s, I guess.
0: And then um, going back a little bit again, um, when you first started growing grapes, um, who did you look for for help?
2: We didn't have any. We didn't have did anybody. We had the, a three sons helped them. Mm-hmm. They were in high yeah, school were, and junior high. In the, age. in the summer, they worked
1: in a vineyard.
2: Didn't, and, yeah.
1: But that was it, yeah. We did everything.
0: And when you had questions um, about the vineyard or something, who did you ask?
1: There was nobody to ask. Well, there was. We asked. Oh, go ahead. There
2: was a vineyard organization, a winemakers organization that met once a month. It was all developing, but nobody had experience. Um, And that was one organization for the whole northern half of the state. And. you know, we, we kept asking
1: the scientists at Oregon State and, because they had never had any experience, they didn't know what to, what to suggest, and so it was sort of uh, on-the-job training to figure out what what was best, and with everybody doing things, it sort of eventually came out that
2: Pinot was the best one, and and so which is still considered to be true, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Were you guys involved, over your time um, in the industry, were you involved in organizations, wine organizations? Wine-related?
2: All of them. Yeah, we were were both knighted in Knights of the Vine, the international organization, and uh, I belong to Women for Wine Sense. Oh, what else did we do? Well, the, the
1: Oregon Winery Association, yeah. uh, the first meeting, one of the first meetings we had was in Ponzi's living room, and all the wineries of the Willamette Valley fit in fit the Liddy, and one with, and, living room. One slipping. And the, the issue was, Hillsboro Happy Days was going to have a wine event, and the big issue was whether we should, as a group, should
2: participate <laughs> or not. <laughs> That that believe first, it or not, and that was, and we we won our first three medals at, yeah. at Hillsburg. We Got gold medals from that for Happy one days. Day. And then they just, that's they, how primitive the business was at the time. <laughs> that was about 1981, maybe. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, what do you think um, should be attributed to the success and the continuation of these organizations through the years?
1: What contributed to the success? Mm-hmm. And it Stubbornness <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it was a just something that ha, had to keep growing at first you couldn't even get distributors You couldn't get banks to finance you because they didn't know they didn't know what was going on. And so until about probably the 90s, the banks wouldn't even talk to you in terms of getting a loan for this and even
2: even the agricultural banks. And um, we did have, uh, have partners, financial partners. Um, three or four different sets of people that, through the years that helped.
0: How did your relationship with other wineries and vineyard owners change during, as the industry continued to grow? Change, pardon me.
1: Change as it grew. Well, at, at first we were all very close together because there were just a small number and we all shared equipment and experience and so on. But as it got bigger and, and particularly as uh, what, what people with a lot of money came in who weren't do-it-yourselfers, do uh, it sort of changed and then it, then it became more of a, a, a business.
2: But some of the people who were uh, the pioneers realized it, de- it depended on all of us to do well for it to grow. Like Myron Redford, he was just wonderful. Isn't that his last mm-hmm. name? Yeah. yeah, I mean he would give you the shirt off his back if you needed it for your to do something with. So he's a very generous man. Is he still at it? No, I thought I heard read somewhere that they sold it. Yeah, a couple years ago. He and Vicky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, he's just the one I remember most because. He was very generous with his time and his equipment and his advice. And I'll Dickie always remember Rath
1: that. Nicky Rath was too very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and what, was one of, what is one of the most important things that you learned from being involved in the industry?
1: That's a tough question. I don't know mean we were part of part of something that grew and and then we left and so uh,
2: well you reach a certain age and you don't want to keep going at that pace yeah but I mean we t- had weddings I mean we did everything it was a 24-7 after, business yeah you you're a farmer first and then you have Make a product, then you have to market the product. then you have to be we had thirty thousand visitors at our winery a year, plus a hundred thousand at our tasting room at Lincoln City for a few years and uh, it's just it 's kind of overwhelming after a while unless you're doing unless you have the money to hire other people to do every, all those things so a hard business.
0: Did you raise, because you say that you did everything during this time you had the winery, did you um, ever expand to more staff or did it mostly...
1: well, Eventually, and particularly with the, when we got the, the tasting rooms going, uh, we had, for a while, we probably had about 70 employees in terms of, of, well, at, at the winery we probably had about five employees in the tasting room and the winemaker. But our our tasting room at, was in the um, factory outlet mall in Lincoln City and it worked it was open 12 hours a day seven days a week. So we had and we had a a tasting bar a wine tasting bar and a and a deli and a coffee. Uh, so So we had we had a lot of employees there that were, because of you know several, there were probably four or five at a time there that worked there, and then because of the long hours, there was other people too. So uh,
2: were you ever there? Hmm. Let's see, it's called it's a coffee shop, I think. Yeah, now. I think
1: they've turned it. Uh-huh. Uh, when when we sold the winery, the new owners kept that tasting room open for. Two or three years, mm-hmm. but ultimately closed in and partly probably because the the rent on the on that property kept going up.
2: Well, um, also, uh, Mr. Pamplin bought our winery, and he's got is his? He has those other stores. Yeah, he has
1: your Northwest. Do you know that chain?
2: One yeah. at the airport. It's sort of like port,
1: like made in Oregon. I'm stores. not sure those and are and still and his, but and they and were at the time. They, and yeah, I think they are. Is because. Actually, he, he is, was the biggest agricultural operator in Oregon. He had a thousand acres in Yamhill County in 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 orchards and berries, and he had fifty thousand acres in eastern Oregon. And um, I, don't, I don't know what he produced over there. Plus, we were his twenty-third business. Uh, he, he had the Portland Tribune is his. He had a Sand radio station. And the Ross Island Sand and Gravel, and... He
2: was uh, a, he's a remarkable man. He's got several degrees, he's an ordained minister, he's written umpteen books, he's just...
1: Uh, Yeah, so, um, anyway.
0: Uh, Whenever you finally decided that you're going to sell a winery, was there something in particular? That
1: you were looking for in the
2: personalized kind
0: of Retiring.
1: Rest. <laughs> yeah, we we're looking for retiring.
0: <laughs> we were close,
2: getting close to seventy. Yeah, we were seventy when yeah. we went. Oh, not quite we, sixty. I was sixty-eight, I think, and you were sixty-nine. So. Uh, yeah, you know, developing. <laughs> we're in our late eighties now. <laughs> de- developing
1: a, a business like that, you, you know, you grow it and. But at some point, we didn't have anybody in the family that wanted to continue it. Our, we had one son who was a viticulturist. In fact, he, because, he, he worked for me, uh, the three sons worked for me in the vineyard in the summer when it was developing. And he, he liked that. And he went to the University of California at Fresno, which is a viticultural school, and got a degree in viticulture and came back in about 18, 1980, I think he graduated, and he worked for us as a, as managing a, our small vineyard for a year. But that wasn't really nothing, so he, he saw the opportunity to to start managing vineyards and opened a vine, vineyard management company. And at You've probably that, heard of yeah, Mark Benoit. And yeah. the um, at that was a time when there were a lot of people looking buy land in Oregon and start a vineyard or have a vineyard started that they could retire to and so he 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 probably planted 3,000 acres of vineyards in Yamil County um, before he died and as and as he was doing all this vineyard management he was buying supplies and things and so he started a vineyard supply company which is Oregon Vineyard Supply which is still in Uh, business. We think
2: that's how we got cancer that he got into some of the chemicals, chemicals that, that were stored there. He died of cancer at forty-three. Um, um, left three kids, a wife. So
1: did that answer your question? I'm not sure what your question was now. Yeah.
0: Um, since you guys had so many different aspects to your business, the winery, the vineyard, the second winery in Lincoln City, you've won so many awards, is there a particular thing that you're most proud of that you guys did during that
1: time? I can't think of anything particular, I think just everything, the whole thing, being being part of the emerging wine industry that was important
2: mm-hmm. at that time. It was time. exciting, really, to be part of it. So. My best day was, I spent an entire day with Julia Child.
0: Can you tell us about that?
2: Oh Well, the, there was, she was active in the American Food and Wine Society and they meet several times a year in different places in this country. And they were meeting in Seattle in June. I think it was on my birthday. And so I said, for my birthday, I want to go see Juliet because I'd been a fan of hers for years, and so I did. And um, she was on stage with the, Do you remember the Galloping Gourmet? The, he was there, uh, and what um, was that one that yeah. ended in disgrace? Yeah. The other gourmet. Yeah. yeah. The three of them, and they had quite a discussion on the on the stage and. Uh, the other one, Graham Carr, is that his mm-hmm. name? Yeah, the he's the Galloping Gourmet. And um, he was pushing making wine without alcohol because he had some personal inter-family problems with it. And he was trying to get everybody this whole huge audience of winemakers to make non-alcoholic wine well it isn't any good <laughs> and nobody not one man got up and said a word so I did <laughs> and so then she came she came up to me later in the day and she's said, that thanked me for speaking up, and she said she agreed with me, and I thought that was, oh, that was worth standing up and saying something. Yeah, that was a neat day. That was my favorite day. It's a wonderful story.
0: <laughs> um, how have you seen the wine industry evolve as a whole, and where do you see the industry going?
1: It's going to continue to go up. Oh,
2: yeah. yeah. I might be making uh, Cabernets instead of Pinot Noirs, yeah. but... Yeah,
1: as the cli- climate changes, it, Pinot may not be as optimum here, but that's in the future, so we don't have to worry about that. Uh, I think, it, I think you know, all, or you probably know better than we do, because we don't keep up with it, but all the big California wineries that are buying the wineries in... Oregon, has, and I've just recently heard that Kendall Jackson has bought Willa Kenzie, plus another one. That's that they You there. Probably know all this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so now I guess that's the the <laughs> Marcus certification. That it's a good place when they when the California people are coming buying buying vineyards and and
2: wineries. Let's see, we started in seventy-nine, eighty-nine. Nine. Going on forty years from the time we started. That's an amazing Yes, my uh, uh, act,
1: increase. Actually those that vineyard in Veneta, the plants were planted in nineteen seventy two and I think they're still producing they that winery, we sold it. To a couple who operated it as Hidden House for a while, and, and apparently they sold it and they sold it to Meriwether, the, the mm-hmm. sparkling wine producers. And then I don't know what happened.
0: So you talked about this a little bit, but um, when you retired, did you expect the industry to grow so much in between then and now?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, uh, at the time we were at the time we were left, The time we left, which was 1999, it was was just beginning to burgeon, and since then it has just flowered.
2: But there's still people all over the country that don't even know there's an industry here. It's just amazing. If you travel even halfway across the country, they don't know anything about Northwest Wine. So, they, they've still got a lot of room to grow.
0: You're saying um, that there is a story about your name? Oh. you want to talk about that?
2: <laughs> it's your I'm name. Your <laughs> well, uh, we,
1: my, my great-grandfather came from Canada in 1880. And at that time, all, as, as all the immigrants come, they wanted to be Americanized. So, they started produce, pronouncing our name Benoit. And as I grew, I grew up in Yakima, and that was what we were. That was our name. But when we started producing wine, we were making Pinot Noir, and you can't be Chateau Benoit selling Pinot Noir. So we changed it to the correct pronunciation, which is Benoit.
2: And so at that time. People didn't know how to say Pinot Noir, and we had to say it so many times. We said, if we keep saying our name Benoit, they're never going to say Pinot Noir, (laughs) right? So it was easier to change it. We're glad we did.
0: (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success.